0: Hey, this is Marty Martin. And Art Woods. We're in the middle of a fun drive for Season 3. We recently set a goal of raising $1,500 from Patreon patrons, and we're more than halfway there.
1: Thank you to Adam Norris, Rosso and Qualls, Elijah Capricorn, Lucas Squamly, Nathan Cooper, Evangeline Buckland, Robert Porter... Chris Reed, Harry Newell, Jonathan Priest, Christian Moore, Siri Davis, and everyone else who has donated so far. We really appreciate your support.
0: If you haven't supported Big Biology yet, please go to patreon.com bigbio and make a recurring donation. As a patron, you'll also get access to our Patreon community where you can submit questions for guests, read show notes, and listen to extra audio from our interviews.
1: And if you want to make a one-time donation, visit our website, bigbiology.org. We
0: know this is a hard time to ask for money, but if you had the ability to give, we would really appreciate your support right now.
1: And if you don't have the funds now, please just tell your friends about us over social media or leave us a rating on iTunes.
0: Thanks in advance, and here's another student spotlight from Ruth Dimri at Vassar College.
1: My name is Ruth Demery.
0: I'm an undergrad student at Vassar College, and I was conducting my senior thesis through the lab of Mike Dibbets at Bard College. However, due to the current pandemic, it is turning into a literature research project. I'm hoping to continue with hands-on research in the future. I started as an intern at a farm in the Hudson Valley a few years ago. I worked closely with llamas, alpacas, sheep, and goats. Now, I'm not saying all my friends are animals, but a lot of them are llamas at this point, while I was there, I was also introduced to Haemonchus contortus, or barber pole worm. It's one of the most economically important parasites in the world because of its damaging effect on sheep and goats and its high adaptability. The current test for Hamanchus is time-consuming and not very informative, so we decided to develop a better test which would allow farmers to make personalized treatments for infected animals and would slow the rate at which the parasite
1: evolves chemical resistance.
0: One of the worst disease outbreaks ever seen is currently spreading across the globe. The pathogen has appeared on every continent except Antarctica, causing enormous damage along the way.
1: Recent evidence suggests that it originated in Asia, and the humans have brought it with them as they traveled around the world. So far, there's no known cure. Surprisingly, we're
0: not talking about the new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. We're talking about a chytrid fungus— Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis, or BD for short. Over the last several decades, BD has devastated many amphibian populations and threatens even more in the years to come.
1: BD has caused at least 90 amphibian species to go extinct and at least 500 more to decline precipitously. Wendy Palin, a biologist at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, was recently quoted in National Geographic as saying, Kytrid fungus is the most destructive pathogen ever described by science.
0: The fungus infects the skin, which for amphibians is the key organ that regulates internal levels of water and ions. Skin infected with BD just doesn't regulate as well, though. And if levels get too far out of whack, the animal could die quickly.
1: Craig Franklin, a physiologist at the University of Queensland in Australia, is trying to understand why the fungus kills some frogs but not others. In a recent paper, he and collaborators argue that skin sloughing, which is how amphibians renew their skins, could be a key factor for resistance when and how often frogs slough affects how well they can get rid of the fungus and also how well they can sustain water and ion homeostasis.
2: One of the functions of the skin is in, is in defense, essentially part of the immune system. And it's the, the first line of defense. So sloughing can reduce the, the burden on the skin of, of pathogens. And what we showed was that with every sloth, BD, the fungus decreases. And in the species that are less susceptible, when they sloth, they can get rid of 100% of BD. So it's a really, really effective part of the the defense system.
0: Differences in skin sloughing among species offers important clues about why BD devastates some species more than others. But it doesn't address one of the most surprising things about the infection. Unlike most pathogens that cause pandemics, or in this case, the animal equivalent called panzootics, BD has existed for decades in many places around the world. Contrast that with SARS-CoV-2, which probably jumped into humans just last year before spreading worldwide over the past few months.
1: Why didn't BD have major effects on amphibian populations earlier in the 20th century? And what changed in the past few years to transform it into a killer?
0: Craig is interested in understanding how changes in environmental factors like temperature and UV light affect the spread and consequences of BD. He and others think that a cocktail of worsening anthropogenic forces are ramping up the lethality of the fungus.
1: In this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Craig about the evolutionary history of BD, what it's doing to amphibian populations around the world, and how new physiological studies are revealing the mechanisms underlying its lethality. We also explore broader links between environmental change and BD outbreaks, and what, if anything, we can do to protect frogs. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods.
0: And this is Big Biology.
1: Well, Craig, thanks so much for joining us on the show. We're we're thrilled to have you on, and uh, really excited to talk about, about your work. Uh, your work is multifaceted, and there's a lot of things we could have chosen as topics, um, and we've we've settled on talking about uh, chytrid fungus and amphibian declines. And and maybe let's just start, just you know, lay the lay the menu out of uh, what chytrid fungus is. What's chytridiomycosis, and what you know, what what's the big
2: deal for amphibians of the world? Chytridiomycosis and chytrid fungus. Well, um, it's kind of relevant and pertinent in this in this world at the moment because what we're talking about is a panzootic, um, and the human equivalent of that, of course, is a pandemic. And when we think about the pandemic that's happening at the moment. The disease, of course, is COVID-19. And the problem agent is SARS-CoV-2, or the 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 severe acute respiratory coronavirus. Um, so if we come back to this panzootic, well, the agent is a fungus, and it's got a horrendous name, Patricchiochitrium ben let's, <laughs> it is let's, a This, this story is this is, can't it, say is, it. is there's way too many syllables there. Yeah, I'm not going to try <laughs> There's that. There's way one. too many syllables. So let's, let's just stick with BD. That's what we call it. That's, that's, that's the agent, and the disease that it causes is called chytridiomycosis, And it's a disease that's, that's lethal to amphibians, uh, to frogs uh, in particular. And it's argued in the literature that chytridiomycosis um, represents the greatest loss of biodiversity by any disease. Um, so if we, if we think about the amphibians, around about 7,500 species uh, described. Um, in the IUCN, 40%, or uh, well, over 40%, are listed as threatened. And one of the factors that's contributing to that, that threatened stasis is this disease. It's been detected in around about 700 species uh, to date, and it's responsible for declines in 500 species, uh, responsible for 90 extinctions. It's staggering.
1: Do you you think it's occurring in the rest of the species and people just haven't looked yet? Is Is it a sampling issue?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's right. I mean, we know all about detection at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, with our pandemic. And yes, I think, I think there's around about 1300 species that have been tested. So really very few. So it could be far more widespread.
1: If we just narrow in on the, the sort of phylogenetic distribution across the amphibia. So you mentioned that it is mostly is hitting frogs. So, but what about other groups of amphibians? Are they just less susceptible or not affected at all?
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's cases in Sicilians and of course, salamanders uh, are the other uh, two major uh, taxonomic groups within the am- amphibians, but most, mostly it's been identified um, in uh, in frogs, uh, the anura. Uh, but but there are cases, yeah.
0: So you said ninety ninety different species were implicated. Their extinction
2: due to the- ninety have become extinct. And, and there's some famous examples here in Australia. Um, Perhaps the, the, the most famous example of an extinction that's happened um, it happened in the uh, 70s, 80s uh, is our gastric brooding frogs. These were, were frogs that lived actually around where, where um, uh, I live, uh, here in southeast Queensland. And they lived in forest streams. And it was a frog that uh, had a very unusual reproductive strategy of, um, where the female swallowed fertilized eggs, um, and then those eggs developed in the stomach. Uh, they weren't digested, and uh, the females gave birth to, uh, to live uh, little metamorphs, baby frogs. And I always they showed up... sort and, uh, of spitting I, them out? I, yeah, and they spit them out. They give live birth out of the mouth of all these wow. little um, awesome. frogs. So, sadly, they've disappeared. And I tell the story to my students in lectures, and I ask them, after I tell this, weave this story, do they believe me or not? I don't show any photos, and most of the class doesn't believe me <laughs> <laughs> until I show the photos, and then I sadly say, "Well, um, this the species is no more. We've lost it." And there are uh, undoubtedly a number of contributing factors to their declines, but chytridiomycosis was probably implicated or is implicated in, their, in, the, in that extinction. So, 90 extinctions. I think there's about there's over a hundred. Uh, or more species that are in serious population decline because of the disease, uh, and it's global. It's a panzootic, it occurs on every continent uh, except, of course, Antarctica, where there are no frogs. <laughs> but they used to protected be protected from Kitridge. <laughs> They're <are> fossil frogs. <laughs> <Yeah>. That's right. <laughs>
0: Uh, let's let's talk about where this beast came from, because uh, you know I've I've read a little bit about this, and um, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the impression was like many th- things that sort of become pandemic, that it comes from some place and or it goes to some, goes to places where it's never been before. And the problems that it causes have to do with the novelty of the interactions, if, you know, the whatever host it is that it that it sees. So in the early days, I think most people were under the impression that it recently arrived. But a lot of the data that's come out in the last few years is hinting that's not quite right. And in fact, it's a much more complicated sort of story, right?
2: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It is complicated, and um, and just in in recent years. Um, its origins have, have been questioned because originally um, it was proposed that the, the, the fungus BD uh, came out of um, Africa, or South Africa, and that it was kind of first, first identified back in the 1930s in Xenopus. That was the, the origins of it, and it, uh, from there it kind of got transported around the world, and we'll come back to being trans- transported around the world but recent studies using far more sophisticated techniques and whole genome sequencing indicate that um, it's most likely its origins came from Asia and in particular um, Korea, the Korean peninsula. And clearly humans have played a major role in the spread of uh, this, this fungus uh, through uh, wildlife trade. And dare I say it, perhaps scientists as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, because the Xenopus that you mentioned is a workhorse in developmental biology. That's the classic African clawed frog that lots and lots of scientists around the world use.
2: That's right, and I think that that also led to the belief that that was, you know, that it was the transport of that species around the world that enabled it to to suddenly appear. Well, not suddenly to appear on on every continent, bar Antarctica.
0: I want to spend a little bit more time on you know, the, the weirdness of this panzootic, um, as you represented it, this fungus seems to have been everywhere for a long time. And so many of these emerging infections, they emerge because they're put in places they haven't been, or we go to places that we weren't before and pick up something. So the weird thing about this is that it seems to have been in a lot of places for a while. And I don't know if we want to spend some more time on Korea because I'm fascinated with how long it's been in Korea and whether we know anything about how it's affected or affecting amphibian populations there. But the novelty about this infection among many things, but the one that really stands out to me is that it, it was around and inconsequential or at least not obviously detectable. And then in the nineties or maybe eighties, it really started to surge in importance to the point of extirpating and making extinct
2: populations and species. One of the interesting things about it is that it, it seems to be present um, well before you see the disease manifesting. So it's, it appears in, in, um, in populations or appears in, in, in areas before it starts to have these devastating effects. And it kind of brings into play as to what else has changed to make it suddenly virulent and to, to make it uh, pathogenic. And in some ways, that's where we came in. Because um, being a, an ecophysiologist, I'm kind of interested in patterns in the, in, in the environment and those patterns patterns in, in, in nature, whether they are distributions or life history traits or behaviours. I'm interested in what, what underlies those those patterns. What's, what's the underlying physiology? And there are a couple of things that um, Ed Meyer, Um, and Rebecca Cramp um, kind of brought to my attention one was that ketridiumycosis is most prevalent and most virulent during winter at high altitudes and populations at high latitudes and there's a common factor environmental driver than that is temperature low temperature it seems that under low temperatures that uh, this this disease um, is more virulent uh, or, 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 or more damaging and the other thing that, that kind of piqued my interest as well was that uh, in the 80s, catridiomycosis really started to, to, to peak. And in the late 70s, early 80s, something else happened in terms of environmental drivers, and that was there was an increase in UVB, ultraviolet B radiation, as a consequence of the ozone hole forming. And that's those two environmental factors... Uh, is what really temperature and UV is what's really driven uh, my research program as a physiologist dabbling um, invading a, an area that uh, traditionally we, we we don't tend to to go into, but it's just it's just opened up some really amazing questions.
0: Well, this is good. This is where the discoveries are often made. You know, at the at the edges of, of disciplines. So um, so if you had to, I, I want to channel one of our um, Patreon um, supporters, Luke Glidden. If you had to channel, or if I had to channel him and, and sort of ask you his his question, there were multiple different pieces. Um, what effect would you say that climate change has had on either its distribution or its effects, or both? And if you can add something in about the inherent plasticity, I mean, we you know amphibians generally are so known for their developmental plasticity. Is there some interplay that you're working on or something interesting to say there with respect to climate change?
2: Yeah, so um, if, if we just kind of step back and just and talk about environmental change, and um, I'm going to come back to my hobby horse, and that is um, ultraviolet radiation, which I call the, the forgotten or the neglected stressor, pervasive stressor, um, that we have seen change dramatically. And we know that UVB... Is uh, immunosuppressive. We know that it's increased dramatically as a consequence of the formation of the ozone hole. That occurs at in, 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 in both poles, but uh, more severe or, or larger in the in the Southern Pole over the Antarctic. And that we also know that UVB uh, has a wide ranging effects um, and. As I mentioned, being immunosuppressive. Is that a, is that a link? Is it is it a, just purely coincidental that uh, the increase in UV uh, in the in the 80s, in particular, uh, coincided with the the, the peak in um, or the you know the takeoff in candida
1: so, so I'm, I want to return maybe a little later to these two environmental drivers, temperature and, and UV. And, uh, you know, especially I I'm, myself am very interested in temperature and its effects on physiology. And so I want to get into the, the sort of mechanistic details there. But maybe let's let's start down that path by um, you telling us what, what are the symptoms for a frog of having a uh, cotridiomycosis and, and sort of what, what happens to them that, that depresses their performance or leads to their, their death? Yeah,
2: okay. So but just, just very briefly, how the, um, how BD works, it, it, it attacks the skin, okay? So it, it, these zoo spores penetrate the skin, and these zoospores spores are motile, they're transported through water, and um, it's a very good vector to go from, from animal to animal, from in this case from species to species, and continent to to continent. So fundamental to understanding the the pathophysiology of this disease is understanding the skin of frogs and how and, and how important it is um, in, in amphibians. You know, when we, we see a frog with gatridiomycosis, there's a decreased appetite or they stop feeding altogether they become Lethargic. Often they they have a loss of postural control. They sloth more frequently or irregularly, and uh, patches of skin just kind of fall off instead of a, a, a complete sloth. And we may want to come back to that. You start to see a reddening in the skin that can proceed to um, ulceration. That in turn can you there's a you know a loss of body fluids or a loss of electrolytes. Um, so you see that, and eventually the the frog uh, succumbs to that. It's um, yeah, it's a, a pretty unpleasant disease uh, that that results or can result in, in the death um, of of the animal.
1: Sounds like the world's worst case of uh, you know terminal athlete's yeah. foot, right? Yeah, I
2: mean, <laughs> that's right. It's, I mean, it's going to keep on coming back. It's a fungus, you know, But affects that affects yeah, yeah. the skin.
0: You've Hinted a couple of times, Craig, that um, amphibian skin is unique. So, can you say a little bit more about what makes it you know special? And in this case, the special being you know vulnerable to more problems than we would ever have, besides athlete's foot, don't want to minimize, but you know, okay.
2: And we, 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 all, we all know that skin is an organ, so we, let's 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 take that, that one off, but for. Amphibians, it really truly is a a multifunctional organ that's involved in all all manner of physiological homeostasis. So the skin, of course, not only being um, uh, an organ that holds everything in, so it's there for for, for structure um, and, and body integrity, it's involved in thermoregulation, it's involved in ionic homeostasis or ionic regulation, it's involved in osmotic regulation, Frogs drink through their skin. It's involved in ammonia excretion or nitrogen excretion. It's involved in the immune system. It's involved in acid-base balance. Um, and it has all these functions that are critical for the amphibian to maintain homeostasis. And because of that, um, it, it needs to be in tip-top condition. And to, 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 to do that, um, frogs regularly sloth. They shed their skin. Um, so they're constantly renewing and replacing their skin. It's, it's kind of neat. It's kind of disturbing watching a frog sloth. It's like an animal that's really constipated. So it kind of gets itself into a really unusual posture. And it, it kind of um, expands itself and shrinks itself. And then all of a sudden, you see along the, the, the back, it kind of splits like you've got a, a, a really tight shirt on mm-hmm. and you're one of those big kind of muscly guys, but like you, Marty. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: <and it> suddenly, <laughs> that's a perfect descriptor.
2: It's uh, <laughs> suddenly, the, you know, the back of the shirt splits open, uh, like the Hulk. That happens and then it gets its arms and it just kind of, its forelimbs, and it just grabs it and pulls it over like a jumper, pulling off a jumper, and then eats it. Oh, no kidding,
1: <laughs> that's amazing.
2: And the whole thing comes off. The whole thing kind of comes off in, in almost one go. I mean, the skin is an entire sloth. It comes off completely, all of it, and, and it, almost in one go, and then they, they feed upon it. And the, the remarkable thing about it is in some species it happens every day. That is some serious skin turnover. Every day it renews its skin. And others you know, it may be two days or four days or a couple of weeks.
0: Will the, will the frogs always eat the skin? So if they're infected, will they avoid it, or do they care? Can they discriminate?
2: Yeah. Um, yes, they, they, we, we have frogs that eat um, their skin that's in, infected, and that's, that's often been discussed as to whether that could possibly lead to some of the more pathogenic effects. I, I, I don't know. Um, but it, it seems to me that the skin is so badly can be be so badly impacted upon by by this this fungus that that's really where uh the you know the, the main problems lie uh,
1: th- th- i think it's a perfect entree into your uh talking just briefly about one of your papers uh from 2017 a paper in in scientific reports led by Michelle Omer. And in it, you did uh, a sort of a comparative study looking at rates of, of skin sloughing of different species with and without in, infection. And, and you seem to show that uh, the rate at which a species sloughs its skin is related to its susceptibility to the, the fungus. So can you just walk us through that, that study briefly?
2: Yeah, look, um, you know, one of the, the, the functions of the skin is in, is in defense, and it's it's essentially part of the immune system, and it's the the first line of defence. The activity of slothing can reduce the the burden on the skin of of pathogens. And what we showed was that um, with every sloth, BD, the fungus decreases. And in the species that are less susceptible um, to BD, when they sloth, they can get rid of 100%... Of BD. So it's a really, really effective part of the the defense system is is slothing. What we we also showed, or what Michelle showed, was that if they do become infected with BD, they actually upregulate the frequency of slothing. So some kind of plastic response there. Yeah, so they're they're, they're responsive to,
1: to that. So, so the species that are susceptible are the ones that slough less frequently or that upregulate less when they are infected? Is that...?
2: N- no, yeah. no. Um, so Michelle also did um, uh, a study where she studied um, sloughing in 21 species. And all around the place, she got to travel uh, to South America and North America, and to study just slothing patterns, and that's why we got this idea. Why we know that some species sloth, you know, every day, and others sloth, uh, you know, sometimes uh, every every two weeks. But we we did in those 21 species, we couldn't really tease apart um, the relationship between slothing frequency and susceptibility. But what what we do know is <laughs> it's, it's kind of complicated. What we what we do know is that in the more susceptible species, slothing is not that it aids in getting rid of the, the, the pathogen, but it's not as good as in those less susceptible. The less susceptible species are far more effective. Slothing is far more effective. And that's why, I mean, one, one, of, the, one of the things you, we do if we have BD in our frogs in our is to increase the temperature of the root because slothing is temperature-dependent. As you increase temperature, you increase slothing frequency, and that in turn can aid in getting rid of VD. But of course, the, 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 the pathogen itself at higher temperatures um, is less viable.
1: So, so circling back to your earlier comments about you know, high altitudes and high latitudes that are cold is that it that just when the frogs are cold they're sloughing less frequently and so it gives bd
2: the the advantage that that's it yeah, that, uh-huh. that that was our working hypothesis yeah. that um, that they become more susceptible during winter um, and the species that occur in cooler climates slough less frequently and so you can so you can start to get a build up of that pathogen between the sloths we call the inter intermult period that the longer that period the more time there is for the the fungus to build up, and if it gets to a, a, a presumably to a critical level, then it's, then you can start to see um, the, the the pathogenic effects.
1: And and does that mean that uh, these chytrid infections are less serious in warm tropical localities? Is that is that observed?
2: Uh, yeah. So the, to a degree, to a degree, they of course occur in in tropical areas as well, but tend to be more prevalent at the higher latitudes and uh, montane species, mountain species. So uh, because this
0: fungus is distributed all over the world and there's been, you know, an intense interest in it um, for a while, do we have any data about the evolution of this sloughing as a defense? Has it become more prevalent in the places where BD has had bigger impacts?
2: Uh, great question. I,
1: I, I don't know. Well, that would be such an incredibly strong selection pressure on that, you'd think. Uh,
2: yeah, so. yeah. You would, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, just to, to pick up the, the rate of it. But, you know, slothing comes at a cost. And this is, I mean, as you know, we, we love talking about trade offs. And the trade off is that slothing is expensive and, you know, energetically expensive. Um, you know, you're replacing your skin. In some species, you know, every every day or every few days, the entire skin. But there's another cost to it, is in that slothing itself um, interferes with homeostasis, and especially ionic and osmotic homeostasis. So you know, yeah, for a frog that has tritiomycosis, um and its response is to increase slothing frequency to get rid of the pathogen, the cost to that is that um, that in turn can result in an ionic and osmeritatory dysfunction because of that increasing sloughing frequency.
1: Just, just tell, tell, tell us what happens when we have new skin, so they've just sloughed the old skin and there's, there's a set of sort of ion and water
2: problems that happen right so so what are those problems yeah, yeah that's right okay so let's let's get back to just understanding a little bit of um, osmotic and ionic physiology for most people it's a kind of pretty dry area I actually quite quite like it but a, a, a frog of course is a hyper osmotic regulator that means that it's its body fluids the osmotic pressure of its body fluids is greater than its environment they're they're a freshwater species for the most part and the problem with being uh, a, a hypoosmotic regulator is that there's a constant influx of water and there's a constant loss of ions. And so the, for the frog to maintain homeostasis, it has to uh, reclaim some of those ions and it pumps it up through, through the skin. Um, in terms of getting rid of the excess water, it has to produce lots of dilute urine. So that's when they're, when they're, they're living in water but for frogs, they're a bit more complicated in that they live in both the aquatic environment and the terrestrial environment. So on land, their skin is actually quite permeable and they can lose water quite quite quickly uh, through, through evaporation. So two different environments, and they have these, these challenges, um, these osmotic and ionic challenges. When slothing comes along, it interrupts the integrity of the skin as it's being replaced. That outer layer is being replaced, and the new layer underneath is, is forming. And on land, when they sloth, all of a sudden, um, their evaporative water loss increases, and, and increases dramatically. They lose water, and they can dehydrate very, very rapidly during, during sloughing. And water, when they sloth, again, there's a disruption to the to the transport mechanisms. The uptake of sodium into the animal from the environment can become interrupted. And they need to quickly renew their skin, bring it back up to speed so that uh, they they can function and maintain homeostasis. Now
0: how how much of the skin when they slough are they sloughing? Are they always losing is is the level is the layer of skin that's sloughed functional? When it goes, or did it die some number of days earlier, and it's just sort of providing this, you know, protection, lack of of water loss, mediating some of that, but otherwise not doing much work, or is it's probably more complicated, but but that's right. What I mean, we know there they
2: they sloth the outer layer known as the stratum corneum, and that's the layer that they that that comes off, and yes, it's stratified. Um, and uh, and the outer layers will will die and um and and get uh. Re- renewed, but it's, it, but it's that underlying layer that also needs to be to be functional very very quickly. And if you, the, the thing about osmo and ionic regulation is, it relies on a whole set of different types of proteins. Um, there are ionics or these ion uh, proteins related proteins, but also there there are water channels aquaporins. All of these need to be functional in the new skin. So, so the process is complex, really, really, really complex. What we've shown is that Ketrid, the, the, the fungus itself, interferes with some of these transport proteins. And can, in some cases, um, their, their, uh, their abundance decreases. And that in turn affects the, the transport properties of, of the skin. Water is perhaps one of the, 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 the easiest ones. If the animals in the environment um, loss of water is a is a problem. And that loss of water increases during slothing. Well if they have mycosis as well at the same time, then that during that slothing period it's it's accentuated, the water loss is accentuated. And the same and the same actually occurs in water. So the main problem in water is the loss of, of ions, sodium ions. Joint slothing, that increases. Slothing plus catridiomycosis it increases even more. And that's why you start to see this, this homeostatic imbalance or this osmotic and ionic imbalance.
0: So do you... I'm trying to put all of this together and, and ask to... Do we know? Is there a consistent way that frogs are dying? I mean, are they all dying from some, something about desiccation? Are they dry, dying more from the ion... Ions being out of balance. I think what what Jamie Voile, to the paper that you're alluding to. What I remember, I mean, and this was the the news media's treatment. So excuse the the general probably misinterpretation. Is that they seem to be dying from heart attacks. Is that right, or is that an overstatement?
2: So so yes, they they reported um, that there were heart attacks. Uh, there are very, very definitely electrolyte imbalances and that can affect all, all manner of electrical signals and contraction. And that, yes, could manifest itself in terms of uh, cardiac uh, arrest. Frogs are amazingly resilient to changes in, uh, in their concentration of electrolytes and water. Uh, they can dehydrate to, to massive extents, far more than we can. And survive. Um, I think that causal link between the, the decrease in electrolytes, or the very low concentrations and cardiac arrest hasn't really been established. Another great project for a, for a student would be just to, to do some isolated heart preparations and actually just look at concentrations of electrolytes to see how the cardiac how the, the heart functions and actually form that causal link. And again, where physiologists come to play is that um, when, we, when we design good experiments, we can establish cause and effect.
0: The very last question that we ask is, um... What did we leave out what else would you like to say that we didn't give you the chance to talk about
2: i I suppose i want to talk about the 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 future i i think we live such privileged lives and one of one of the absolute pleasures that i have is the early career researchers that um, i get to work with every day and totally inspired by them um, and motivated by them that's why i love science These early career researchers are going through a pretty tough time at the moment, wondering about what the future is going to be like. But um, I know there's going to be a bright future for for many of them. And I think the more we can do to encourage and support their careers and their personal growth, but fundamentally their excitement for science, for research. How how privileged are we that we we can um, ask sometimes just basic fundamental questions? and get such enjoyment out of, of uh, finding answers to those, those, those questions. But also, hopefully, having some impact, making people again think and question. Yeah, I think we're lucky.
0: Working with, um, with, with um, you know, folks learning to, to do science professionally, it's, it's the most rewarding part for me too. And even though things may be on the very short horizon with everything that's going now, it, it looks like it's super bleak, um, I think of a, a slightly longer period of time. The outlook is is pretty good. I mean, there, there there will never come a time where we don't need all the science that we do. And if anything, all of these terrible problems that we've been talking about—they're not going to go away immediately. So we'll need creativity and you know a lot of work to yeah. There should be plenty of job that. security
1: so for scientists There's definitely going a positive them, there, but should should be. Yeah, of, <laughs> I, I think S- so, certain yeah, certain areas yeah. more so than others. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, I, it's um, yeah. The, the I think the future is bright because I just see all these amazing young people, dynamic people, uh, who are, are doing some great work. I'm, I'm, you know, when when we see it in our journals, I see it in, in JB, uh, the the contributions that are coming through, and I want to, I want to be able to support them and their careers as much as I can. Uh, whether that's on, a, you know, here on a local scale and, and at the University of Queensland, uh, or on a, on a on a broader broader scale, we need to do that. You know, it's it's, it's funny, isn't it? Um, you get to a stage in your career where it's more about providing opportunities for others that you get the greatest satisfaction out of, and that's that's the stage I am in my in my career where I I love yes, get into the lab or into the field to dabble. That's all I have time for these days. But, but, uh, but actually uh, creating opportunities for, for these young scientists is, is so satisfying and we're so lucky to do that.
1: Our lives now revolve around the new coronavirus, and over the past few months, we've all learned way more epidemiology, immunology, and disease ecology than we probably ever expected to. But human diseases aren't our only worry. Chytrid fungus threatens most amphibians, and if we don't find a way to slow it down, it will continue to drive species extinct.
0: By understanding the ecology and physiology of a disease that affects so many different species, biologists studying BD may also gain insight into other important human diseases especially those that jump between species, such as Lyme disease, West Nile virus, and SARS.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember that we're in the middle of a fundraising drive. You can make a recurring donation on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio, or a one-time donation on the website, www.bigbiology.org. Please help us out. Without your support, we cannot produce the shows you love.
0: We've got a few more episodes coming away before we take a short break over the summer. Up next, we talk to Martin Wichelski, the leader of the Icarus Project based at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior in Germany.
1: The goal of the Icarus Project is to track a huge number of animals from space in real time. Martin's team attaches small transmitters to animals that track their locations and local environmental conditions, and then beams the data back to the International Space Station.
0: Here's what those data sound like as they come into the ISS, where Icarus is now stationed.
1: Thanks to Matt Boyce for producing the episode. Mike Levine runs our social media channels and produces the student spotlights. Dana Baxter helps with background research. And as always, Steve Lane manages our website.
0: Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.